So you might have noticed, but this week was Thanksgiving, and I love, some of you did notice, and I love Thanksgiving. My family growing up, Thanksgivings were a little crazy. We had about 30 to 40 people at our house. We'd be camped out on the basement floor like sardines side to side, you know, popping up at 3 a.m. to go play tackle football till we couldn't feel our fingers anymore. We'd set up that one long board game that would somehow take all week. It was like, oh, it's only going to be an hour, and then suddenly, you know, Saturday rolls around, and the board game's still going. Um, we'd watch the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade, secretly hoping that one of those balloons would pop, you know, and go, you all hope it too, right? Deep down, it's a confession. Thanksgiving was an incredible, incredible time. And as an adult, Thanksgiving is actually a time for me to reflect back on the generosity of my parents. Because as I reflect back at those Thanksgivings with 30 to 40 people at our house, it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if my mom met you at the library days before, my family just laughed. <laughs> you were welcome at our house at Thanksgiving. Didn't matter where you were from, didn't matter what you had, you were welcome at our table. And my parents would be the first to tell you that they are not perfect. That's something you learn when you become an adult, your parents are not perfect. But every year, through toil, sweat, sometimes tears, <laughs> Thanksgiving happened. And thanks to my parents' efforts, sometimes all night, we would come down in the morning to a feast prepared for everyone on the table. And I want to ask you this morning, what would be an appropriate response to such lavish, such unconditional generosity? I mean, what if I had come down, you know, silly 13-year-old me and gone, wow, every year, just by pure chance, all this food appears on the table. Thanksgiving is magical. Or even worse, what if I had come down and go, wow, I set the place settings last. I took like a whole 30 seconds to do that and bang, there's food. I am amazing. I'm truly incredible. That would be ridiculous. That would be absurd. That would be irrational. And so this morning, I want us to reflect on together what would be a reasonable, a good response to God's generosity. See, the generosity of my parents was unconditional. It was already given. There was nothing we could do to earn it. But how much more lavish and unconditional is the generosity of our perfect God? And so this morning we're going to be looking and Paul's going to tell us what a good and rational response to God's generosity is. We're going to be covering a little bit more than you might be used to this morning. We're going to do a whole chapter. I know. It's a bold move. But then I'm flying home, so you all can process it on your own time. And what I'll tell you this morning, in the context of this is really important, what our response to God's generosity is, what Paul's going to show us this morning, is both so much simpler than our pride and our legalism think it is, and yet so much more than our wildest dreams and hopes for our community. So let's talk about that. Turn your Bibles to Romans 12, Romans 12, 1, Romans 12, 1, right after Romans 12, 0, for those who are new. And while you're flipping there, let me sort of set the stage for this passage. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul has explained God's amazing plan of redemption. All of us, every single one of us have rebelled 
against God at some point in our lives. Following after Adam, we have rebelled against the God of life. And the only alternative to a God of life is death. And we see that in our world as our sin. It brings death. It brings sickness. It brings destruction. It brings death to our relationships, death to our lives. Our sins are destroying us. But God did not leave us in this sorry state, but came to rescue us. Jesus Christ died on the cross, taking the death that we deserved and giving us a life that we did not earn so that we can share eternal life with God. And when you accept this gift, you become a child of God. You're given a sure hope for the future. You can read about it if you want to skip to the end, if you're one of those people. <laughs> you can read about it. You're given a sure hope for the future. You're given a present with the Holy Spirit, with the family of God. You're given a changed life. All of that guilt, all of that shame, all of that sin is washed away. You're free. What an amazing gift God has given us. Now, how do we respond? Romans 12.1. Paul's going to tell us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul calls upon the Roman Christians to give their lives as living sacrifices to God. And the same exhortation applies to us today as their spiritual family members. And I want you to notice that what Paul's asking for here is not a heroic effort on our part, but a sweet surrender to the God who loves us so much. What's being sacrificed here? What's being sacrificed, Paul says, is our bodies. And I don't know about you, but I really, I, I'm kind of fond of this. Like, I use this to play football. I use this to come to church. With my body, I praise God. With my body, I love other people. With my body, I care for others. With my body, I everything that I have in this world is right here. <laughs> I am less than human, the Bible says, without my body. That's why I'm going to get a new one. So when Paul says to give up our bodies, he means everything, everything. And the sacrifice is a living sacrifice. It's not a one-time sacrifice, but a daily surrender to the will of God in our life, to the will of God in our life. C.S. Lewis says this so well. He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, that's your vain attempt at yourself without God, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, my, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. God is not interested in stilted, hypocritical worship. He doesn't want your Sunday best. He doesn't want, he wants you. He loves you. He doesn't need you. He wants you. And that's so much better. What does God want us for? 
What is this sacrifice for? This sacrifice, Paul says, is for transformation. As people who are giving our entire lives over to God, we can't help but be transformed. We are not to be conformed to the world anymore, but transformed by the power of God. What is the world? The world, or this age, as it can also be translated, is not a synonym for the people we don't like. It's not a synonym for just culture. It's the sin-sick systems inaugurated by Adam's fall. The world is in the messages that bombard us every day, saying we need more to be happy, saying we need to get back at our enemies, saying that we need to live to please ourselves. The world is the pride of life, as John will describe, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the flesh. It is our sin-sick world where people are exploited and crushed and die. But thankfully, Paul says, there's something new going on. Someone's opened the window. There's a breath of fresh air, which after being in your house all week for Thanksgiving, you're like, whew, that's a great image. <laughs> we no longer have to be molded by the world's desires and ways of doing things, but we can submit to a new power, the transforming power of God. When we surrender to God, we are being transformed at the most intimate level, our minds. But what is God's will? Paul says we're being transformed for the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. What is that will? And I have to tell you guys, as I reflected on this as a kid, this one always troubled me. I never read past verse two. <laughs> so I was like, what is God's will? Am I, am I smarter than non-Christians? I went to college and discovered that wasn't true. Am I, am I, am I, am I supposed to like have better storytelling? I, what is God's will? Well, this morning I'll help you not make the same mistake I did. Let's keep reading. <laughs> and find out what we are being transformed for. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, for the, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We are being transformed to live in transformed community. God is not making spiritual Lone Rangers. He is transforming us to live in a spiritual family, a spiritual family that stretches all the way back into the Bible, all around the world today in the present, everyone around this room, and all the way into the future, into eternity. I want you to notice that Paul moves right from talking about being transformed by the power of God into how we live with one another. And this is sort of my main point for this morning. What if the best metric for our spiritual growth isn't thinking deep esoteric thoughts or a hyper-spiritualized experience, but the way that we live in the concrete, messy business of ordinary life with one another? What if transformation results in transformed communities? What does such a life look like? Paul tells us we shouldn't have a blown up ego, but recognize the gifts that God has given us and use them to serve one another. I love the image of the body of Christ. I mean, your body, 
is millions of incredibly complex little cells all working together in perfect unison to keep you alive and eating turkey. Your body is incredible. Your brain can't be like, well, I do all the thinking around here and the kidneys, they've been kind of, you know, not pulling their weight. Let's just, no, you'll die. <laughs> you'll die. You need every part of your body. And in the same way, we are many individual people, but we are made one in Jesus Christ. By using our unique gifts, backgrounds, personalities, God uses us to build up the body of Christ. Can you imagine a community? Imagine with me where every person was wanting to use their unique gifts, their unique background to serve the people around them, to build up human flourishing, to love Christ, to build each other up in Christ. Who wouldn't want to be part of that community? That is what the church is meant to be. That is God's vision for us together. Being transformed is using our gifts to build up the body of Christ. And this is so cool because what Paul is basically saying here is know your gifts and use them for Jesus. You have been given a unique place, unique strengths, unique things that bring you life. How do you use those for Christ? How do you use those to build up the people sitting around you this morning? I don't know what your sphere is, but my sphere was youth ministry. And I think back on so many people who poured their unique gifts into building up the youth ministry here at BCC. I think back on one high schooler who really wanted to serve, but he was an introvert. The large groups wasn't really his scene, right? I hear mm, from introverts around the room. They're like, we're exhausted after Thanksgiving, Josh. Thank you for seeing us. Um, <laughs> large group wasn't his thing, but he would come every single week, high school, right after school, and help set up, just set up for the younger kids. And then he'd leave, and every week he'd come back, and the fellowship that developed through our setup time, the, I'm, I'm telling you, youth ministry would not have happened without that faithful high schooler. I think of adults who were not super into the large group scene, but they would serve snacks. They would organize check-in or they'd provide a listening ear to a kid who needed it. I think of people who loved games. They loved playing games and they would come every week and sacrifice their time to create a safe space for kids coming from every background, every kind of week to just enjoy fun and fellowship in the community of Christ. I think of the conversations that came out of those game times and the amazing, precious things that God did. So what are you good at? What do you like to do? What can you do that others can't? Do it for something that matters. Do it for something meaningful. Do it for Christ. Notice the major point here. We need one another. Everyone take a deep breath. You are not alone. You are not a world changer. We are world changers. God is changing the world through his people and is inviting each of us to contribute our gifts to something meaningful that lasts. How cool. But that's still a bit abstract. That's still a bit up here. What does this look like on a day-to-day -day basis? What does such transformation look like today as you walk out of church, as you try to navigate parking, as you go home and have to eat turkey for the fifth day in a row? <laughs> I'm really hoping my family has eaten that by the time I get home. What does that look like? Well, Paul's going to tell us. Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. 
Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are being transformed to live in transformed communities, which practice transformed love. This is the good that God wills. This is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I want you to notice that the things Paul describes here are not natural. These are not easy. These are not conforming to the world. <laughs> These are things that, if we practice them, will startle the world. I want to highlight some of the contrast between the way the world does things and the way that we're supposed to do things, as Paul outlines in this passage. I won't be able to touch on everything, but I encourage you to meditate on this section this week. The world says to honor yourself above others, to abandon the whole relationship with other thing when it gets hard or annoying. The world endorses pessimism at every turn. We're bombarded with headlines that tell us that things are getting worse and it's everyone else's fault. God's transforming power enables us to honor one another above ourselves, to be devoted to one another, it allows us to rejoice in our hope, regardless of our circumstances, to endure suffering, and to come to God in prayer, looking for the strength to live faithfully. Justin Martyr was a second century philosopher, Christian, apologist, at a time when Christians were being persecuted and killed. And he wrote a letter to the Roman emperor, pleading for the lives of Christians, explaining the faith. And in this letter, he has this amazing line, I think he would have gone viral if he had had Twitter. He says to the emperor, you have the power to kill us, but not to harm us. You have the power to kill us, but not to harm us. And because of that, we can love even you. He didn't say that. I added that one on. It's a paraphrase. <laughs> the early Christians walked in this kind of bold, fearless love. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear from humans. If we believe what is actually written in this book, there is not a person in this world who can harm us. They can kill us, but no one can harm us. And so that empowers us to love boldly, to love in a way that the world will not expect. The world says, cling to your stuff. Black Friday just happened. This is a prime example. <laughs> Be hospitable to those who can repay you. Curse and revile your enemies. And make sure to be aware of your social status. God's transforming power enables us to give cheerfully, knowing that everything comes from God. To practice radical hospitality. To bless our enemies. And to recognize that everyone is created in the image of God and is on an equal footing with us.
This section makes me think back to middle and high school, the ideal times of our lives, I know. And as I think back, I think back on the crushing social pressures, the temptations to evaluate others in relation to how they can benefit you, the, the crushing social pressures that every day force us to conform into these molds that, that, that we, we know are hurting us, that we know we're putting on a face, we know we're not treating others rightly, but every day we do it anyway. What does it look like not to conform to the world in middle and high school? It might be as simple as reaching out to the weird kid, as stepping into the life of someone else, as genuinely caring what someone else is going through, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. I'm telling you, in middle and high school, that will startle a watching world. It's not complicated, but it can have an enormous outsized impact. Paul warns us here against pride. Pride destroys community, absolutely destroys community. I love what he says here about seeing others as equal image bearers of God. John Chrysostom, a bishop from the fourth century, probably one of your favorites reading lists. He has some really good advice here in a sermon he gave. He says, if a poor man comes into your house, talking about this passage, John Chrysostom says, I think it's next slide. I think I have one. All right. It says, yes. It says, if a poor man comes into your house, behave like him and do not put on airs because of your riches. In Christ, there is no rich or poor. Do not be ashamed of him because of his outward dress, but receive him or her because of their inward faith. If you see him in, horror, in sorrow, do not hesitate to comfort him. And if he is prospering, do not feel shy. And this is important about sharing in his pleasure. If you think you are, and I love this part. If you think you are a great person, and I know some of us do, then think others are also. If you think they are humble and lowly, then think the same of yourself. Love others as you love yourself. It's simple. It's so hard. This last section might be the most striking. The world gives us an absolute pantheon of enemies to hate. Social media algorithms are designed to isolate and reinforce our preconceptions. Sound bites give us permission to hate people from a distance without any context or face associated. Political leaders and commentators stir us up with loathing for people. We are taught to hate, to line the pockets of those who hate and to preserve their power. God's transforming power enables us to love our enemies, to strive to live at peace with all people, to bless and pray for those who persecute us. I want you to notice in this passage how concrete our love for our enemies is. It's not just not clapping back. <laughs> it's not just not fighting fire with fire. It actually says we are to actively look for good things to do for them, to feed them, to clothe them, to pray for them. When we are jerks, <laughs> when we fight with the weapons of this world, the world sees that as business as usual. But when we love those who hate us when we love our enemies? That's crazy. Only a God-like love could do that. Only a God who loved poor, sorry rebels like you and I could enable us to love those around us. We represent Christ by how we treat others. And brothers and sisters, often the church, at least here, not here BCC, here, my general region of the world, where, where I've been, <laughs> 
often the church sometimes looks indistinguishable from the rest of the world. I have a Twitter account, I know. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, let's stop being conformed to the pattern of this world. Let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's dream bigger dreams. Let's have bigger imaginations, a more sure and certain hope. And let's have more God-like, more Christ-like love. And I promise you, when we surrender ourselves to God, when we allow him to transform us to love our enemies, boy, the gospel spreads like wildfire. Paul sums it all up. Overcome evil with good. Reminds me of a scene in one of my favorite movies, The Return of the Jedi. Some of you may have seen it, anyone? <laughs> the end of Return of the Jedi, Luke Skywalker, the hero, he's facing down the villainous emperor. And the emperor's trying to convince Luke to seek revenge, to fight with the weapons the emperor wants him to fight with, to strike him down. And in the climactic scene of the movie, Luke looks at the evil emperor within striking distance and casts aside his weapon. And he says, never. I'll never turn to the dark side. You failed, your highness. I am a Jedi like my father before me. Now, most of you probably won't be facing evil emperors anytime soon. But you know what's really cool? All of us have the ability to make the same heroic choice every day. All of us have the opportunity by the power of the Holy Spirit to choose not to be conformed to the pattern of this world to not fight fire with fire, to not pick up the weapons of our enemies and become indistinguishable from them, but to love well, to overcome evil with good, to demonstrate our hope with our day-to-day lives. So this is God's vision for us, a life surrendered to him, living in loving, transformed community, characterized by transformed love. What an amazing vision. What now? Let's be real. All of us, myself included, we overcomplicate this. We think, man, if I'm going to transform the world, I got to start a bigger nonprofit. I got to run a bigger church. I got to preach to millions. I got to get on TV. What if that's just conforming to the world again? The world that tells us bigger is bigger. More is more. Take a deep breath. You didn't expect two in one sermon, did you? (laughs) And look again at what Paul is calling for us here. Maybe the way to love your enemies this week starts with your family. What would it look like not to snap back, not to retaliate to a mild annoyance, to serve the needs of someone else in your family this week? Maybe for some of us, and I relate to this one, loving our enemies looks like learning to love yourself. Maybe it starts at school. What would it look like to love your friends sincerely? To help someone who needs it? To stand up for someone who doesn't have anyone to stand up for them? Maybe it starts at church. Maybe some of you don't have a community to live and love with. This is an incredible one right here. Maybe the first simple step this week is to reach out to someone about joining a small group. To meet up with a Christian coworker for coffee. Maybe it starts at work. What would it look like to love your coworkers without hope of repayment? What apologetic would your contentedness be at your work? What would it look like to not claw the DC corporate ladder (laughs) in a mad rush for the top, but to learn to laugh and love well? 
And maybe one of these small steps is enough transformation for one week. I fear that all of us, myself included, want to move on to the bigger things, the advanced things, when we're still learning to love God with all our hearts, all our minds, all our souls, and all our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That feels like enough transformation for one week. Transformation is an ongoing process of not being conformed to the world, but of submitting to God for transformation. And it starts here. But what if a community lived this way? What if we actually lived this way? Wouldn't we just get trampled on by the world? You know, it's amazing. We're not the first Christians to ever live. <laughs> I know. For me, that was mind-blowing. <laughs> we don't have to speculate. We have brothers and sisters in the past, none of them perfect, but many of them have lived out the life that Paul calls for here. I look back especially to the early church, a church that had, they were a cultural minority, guys, no power, no political or social standing. And yet God used their love to conquer the Roman Empire without raising a sword. <laughs> because of their love, because of their faithfulness, because they rejoiced in hope and prayed faithfully, God used them to spread the gospel like wildfire. So maybe living a life of transformed love is one of your most powerful witnesses. Maybe it's your most powerful apologetic. Maybe your life, maybe the way you talk to people around your table today is one of your most powerful witnesses for the transforming work that God is doing in your life. Brothers and sisters, let's surrender our lives to God's transforming power today step into our community, which is so messy and so beautiful all at the same time, and love well. Let's pray. Father, you are so incredibly gracious. You are so good. Lord, we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. And so because of that, we don't have to live like the world. Lord, we today surrender our lives to you. I pray that each person here would surrender their lives to you on a daily basis, knowing that your plans for our lives are so much better than anything we can dream or hope for ourselves. Father, I pray that we would not allow these, these exhortations from Paul to become bigger, than the day you have given us. But the Lord, we would see opportunities today to represent your love, to tell others about you, and to show that we are people transformed by God's love. Help us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. We thank you for every person here. Thank you for the way that they are an essential, indispensable part of the body of Christ by your grace. And I pray that we walk out today your love. In Christ's name I pray, amen.